listening to Radio Owl's Nest. The songs of Martin Page, all day, all night, forever. So grab a cup of tea, settle down with us in the Owl's Nest. Hello everybody, well this is the second part of the special with Mr Brian Fairweather. There was such an incredible response, the Queen called me, most of Scotland got really, really excited and they said we have to hear the second part. So here we are with the second part, the second show with Brian Fairweather, a special on Radio Owl's Nest. Now let me remind you, uh, you can go back and listen to part one of the special with Brian and you'll hear a lot of strange stuff, uh, mostly to do with our early years together together back in England. Um, you will be hearing on this show, as you did in that show, some new songs, some old songs, some rare songs, and some uh, very special songs written by Brian Fairweather himself. I'll stop rambling and let's get to part two with Brian because you're going to hear about the second uh, era of us working together. So off we go. Part two with Brian Fairweather. We're going to uh, jump into actually coming to America. And that's where really, I mean, when you think about it, me and Bryce started off in England as songwriters, Fair With The Page. Suddenly we're in L.A. And Dancing In Heaven, our song that we played on Eurovision, is playing on K-Rock, underground rock band in L.A. And we are quite successful with that record in L.A. Not many other places, I think Minneapolis. But that allowed me and Brian to go into all the record companies with our cassettes. Not in our briefcases. We look rather cool at this point. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't wearing your kilt, were you, Brian? Uh, not, not yet. <laughs> Did later. <laughs> the kilt came later. Yeah. Um, uh, we'll talk about that. But uh, actually, we, we, we were in all these record companies, and they were very interested in us as songwriters because Dancing in Heaven was playing on the radio, and music was changing at that time, wasn't it? Yes, and we we were kind of steeped in what we did in Britain, so we, we didn't realize how new this, this, uh, this you know, quote-unquote new wave was. Yeah. Uh, until we got there and we got the, the reactions to our um, to our songs, yeah. it, it was uh, phenomenal. I mean, it really was because we phenomenal. were we hired a wreck, didn't we? They called them hire a wreck in LA. Rent a wreck. Rent a wreck. Okay, <laughs> and it was. It, it, I don't know if they still do that. You're bringing but, it back. Uh, we um, we would just drive around all these record companies that I'd found out about uh, in this rent a wreck, and all we cared about when you go to these places to get the rent a wreck, which was an actual wreck, was if the radio worked, didn't it? That's right. We you had to play we, music on it. They said there's no wheels on this one. We said, but the radio right. sounds great. How's the radio? <laughs> and what we did was play the radio and go between EMI America, Geffen, RCA, um, Universal, Paramount. We just moved around and we knew where we were going. And of course, we had a record on the radio. Actually, we were driving around LA in the sunshine and Dancing in Heaven was on the radio. I mean, it was what, ridiculous. What did it? LA feel? I know what it felt like for me, but what did it feel like for you, Brian? It felt like a, like a different planet. Yeah. I mean, you know, here's a. Glasgow boy that knows like Glasgow and London and that's about it you know yeah, yeah. and you come to Los Angeles and the in the 80s in the 80s yeah. and you know you're very much in demand I'd you know never been to so many dinners and uh, drinkies yeah uh, Never been so even the secretaries fancied us at the record companies, didn't they? <laughs> I mean, we never they had that in England. You, I don't think I mean. <laughs> <laughs> we, we never had that in England in Wilston. That didn't happen. Oh, know? no, nobody talked to us in England. <laughs> nobody talks to you in England. It's like, how you doing? Well, whatever. Yeah, it's gonna rain tomorrow. What do you want? Yeah, 
<laughs> you don't stand a chance. <laughs> but we were in L.A. at that time, and, I mean, it was pretty... Uh, I think I can remember we were staying at uh, Diane's house, both of us kipping on the floor there, and when when we'd finished our meetings, we used to listen to the... Um, the answer phone of our, uh, of our of our phone, and it was like sixty to seventy calls that it used to come in saying, "We're interested in this song. We're interested in that song," and it was like quite ridiculous, wasn't it? It was crazy. I'd, I'd never seen anything like that before. Yeah. You know, we'd uh, we'd actually listen to every single message. We'd make notes about who it was that was calling, yeah. the name, the record company, what they looked like, what did yeah, what <laughs> yeah, what size of sock they wore. <laughs> we made detailed notes, and uh, we eventually saw every single one of them. I think, we did, right? and we played a very sly game i think it, we, we we would go in and play them songs that we'd written in england and there was a real interest in each song and we'd sort of say well we've been across to geffen records uh, two hours before and they want this song and so we were able to play one record company against another right what was fearful though wasn't it bry was when um somebody would say to us okay we want you to work with a certain artist and we thought oh my god we've now got to do it because we've been selling ourselves now we've got to prove ourselves because we were we were the techno kids in la and we said oh we've worked with tom dolby blinded by science and we worked on a Fairlight computer and we know all about it and then they were like well where is your Fairlight computer it like, was in my suitcase <laughs> <laughs> they told us not to bring the suitcase <laughs> No, I think we said, well, we haven't got one on us, but we can totally make one real quick. <laughs> I think we can build it. <laughs> we can make a Jupiter 8 sound like it. <laughs> but it was an unreal time. I know we were going, that, you know, you'd, you'd finish in a record company and they'd like all your songs and put them on what they called hold. Yes. It meant they were going to possibly record that song for an artist. That was a good thing. It was a good thing. And we'd drive down the Sunset Boulevard with the sun going down. And I tell you, I mean, it was a magical time, wasn't it? Well, we didn't know exactly what we were supposed to i mean from my point of view what, what we were supposed to do were we supposed to walk in there like old hollywood style and sit down at the piano and play or yeah. play guitar yeah. or whatever and sing or do we play cassettes or you know in, in some cases we were just thrown together with an artist and it was like yeah. uh, you know you're, yeah. you're in cold here you know well this is interesting for everybody to know because that brian reminded me that we went into our first ever success in america but besides Dancing in Heaven, our first top 40 record was a song we'd actually written for Q Phil, which was quite interesting that all our demos for our own band were being picked up by. Well, they were interesting to labels, and we had a song called Invisible Hands that we'd done a, a little four track demo of, and we played it to Gary Gersh at Geffen, Geffen Records. No, no EMI. He wasn't EMI at Geffen at that's that time. right, bro. He, he did eventually go to Geffen. That's yeah. right. And um, tell the story about that when we were in there. Well, we said we got something that would be uh, great for non-specific artists. And he listened to the, the song. And he said, this is great. He says, I know who's got to listen to this. He says, you heard of Kim Carnes? <laughs> Betty Davis Eyes, girl. And we were like, you mean Betty Davis Eyes? <laughs> Kim Carnes? He says, that's the one. He says, she's got to hear this. And we were like, well, yeah, well, let's get together with her sometime. He says, no, we'll call her right now. Yeah, yeah. She's on holiday in Hawaii or something, right? And I said, no, don't, don't bother her. It's no, all right. Fine, yeah, fine. it's okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll get together later. Like it, yeah. He said, no, no, don't worry about it. He says, uh, let, let's call her now. So he calls her up. She answers. You could hear that raspy voice of yeah, uh, Kim Carnes, right. that, that, that's, that's so in, you know, um, yeah. individual voice that, that Kim had. And she said, yeah, let me hear it, you know. And played uh, our song of a cassette. Of our of our song Down of a four four yeah. track demo over the phone yeah. like to Hawaii, yeah. and we were like, oh my god, this is the best we could do. <laughs> and at the end of it, Kim was like, 
Love it. <laughs> Love it. I'm, as soon as I'm back, we're going to get back I, in touch. I've got to be with you guys. I've got to meet right. you guys. And here is the four-track demo that we played down the phone to Kim Carnes, the original demo of Invisible Hands. original cassette demo of Invisible Hands. It's me and Brian in a flat in Islington in the 80s uh, making a demo. And then uh, here we are in with Gary Gersh at EMI America um, playing this song down the phone to uh, Kim Carnes. You know, and, and, and it was like an unreal situation. Then then he said, there's another song you just played on the cassette called I Pretend. Oh, I Pretend. So yes. we played I Pretend down. He says, and she said back after, oh, I'm going to record that. We were like, 
I like America. I like America. (laughs) So this is how it works. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, literally, um, that was how it was happening in in Los Angeles. And I think it it changed our character on thinking how... um, you could present great creativity yes. without being shut down straight away. America yes. always gave you the chance. For, everybody was like, well, you could be a mass murderer. You could have killed a lot of people. But if you've got a good song. Yeah. Whatever. You're welcome. Come on in. <laughs> <laughs> Just leave the X at the door. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> as long as you've got a hit song, we don't care. And that first song, um, Invisible Hands, became our first top 40. Mm-hmm. And we met with Kim Kearns, and uh, she was a lovely lady. We went to the studio. Now, I just want... Uh, this is a very, a very important story here. Um, I think I know where you're going. Yeah, yeah I think you probably... I haven't told you about this, brother. <laughs> we've got to talk about this. So we know that the studio is somewhere that Kim Kearns is recording in the valley, and we have to go there because they want us to play keyboards on um, Invisible Hands and to sing harmonies. And there's a bit, I was doing a bit of that on the demo, and they wanted that as well. Only you could do that. Not quite as high, but I go, it's still there. That's that Peter Gabriel uh, wail that uh, my mother, when she heard me doing demos, would say, don't do it every time you write a song. She must have been so worried about you listening to you. Do you want a cup of tea, son? (laughs) (laughs) You okay now? She actually said that to me. She says, you know, I love, I like your song, son, but why do you have to end it with a every time? I swear, I swear to God, she, you don't need to do that. So we're, so we're, we're about to go for the first time in Los Angeles in a hire a wreck, playing our radio. Kim Carnes is going to do um, two of our songs. So we're going into the valley and um, we're learning how to get there into the valley to the studio. Something pretty phenomenal to our spiritual health happened on the way to this studio when and i'll set the scene and brian will take it on that there was a haze in the air the mist was coming down it might have been near the coast or something but it's very hazy and we're finding our way through the valley to this studio to work with kim Carnes. i'll let brian take it from here well we're we're driving along and we see these lights in the sky we're like what is that martin and you're like um, I don't know, maybe it's like a, a antenna, like a radio antenna or something like that. I said, no, it's moving. It's coming towards us. And uh, w- then we saw more lights, and they were flashing and swirling. And I said, we've got to stop the car. That's a UFO. So we stopped the car. It we was, got out. It was a UFO. We were almost on it our... Was a, it was a bloody UFO. We were on our knees yeah. in the street now thinking, I got, what I, the I, hell? i got to jump in, but both of us are going. And Brian's going, no, no, look, that's... And I'm going, it, it can't be. It can't And it was low. Yeah. And it was revolving. It was coming through the mist. And he's like, that's going round and round. I said, it is, bro. And then Brian, which is his nature, he said, we got to get out and, and, and face it. <laughs> I, I was like, really? We'll live to tell the tale. I know it. But I got to say, we got out of that car and this thing, and there was no sound. No, no, it was like just hovering above us. Revolving lights. And then I read Burt's Burgers or something like that underneath it. Goodyear tires. I think it was a Goodyear blimp. We could have shut up, got back in the car, didn't say anything to each other. And it was so, so disappointing. Studio, okay? So disappointing because we were like, oh my God. We're seeing it, and you know, you can't go back from this. Your life can't go back. Suddenly, going to studio with Kim Carnes was second best 
to being the in the presence of a UFO, so an attraction got, beam, and all that kind of stuff. You've got to imagine there's two English guys. The doors of this old wreck are open. Radio still playing, and we're on our knees, going, "God, I want to be taken up to God. <laughs> Bring me to God." And all of a sudden, you went, "Oh, Goodyear tires. God <laughs> has to be taken to Goodyear tires. <laughs> God has Goodyear tires on his forehead." <laughs> and it hovered over us. and went. Ooh. We heard the engines in the middle. Better get back in the car. Felt a bit foolish. <coughs> Because we, we were kneeling, we were praying. At then when point. we got to the, the studio, we told Kim about it, and she said, welcome to L.A. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, get in the studio and do, oh, go for that. Um, the, the thing that I remember, though, Brian, about this, is I do think that you and I, truly, when we said this after, that we sensed what it must be like Oh yeah. to feel it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I thought, we didn't run away. No. You sort of go towards it, don't you? Yeah, and you often think, if you saw something like that and you really believed that's what it was, what would you do? Yeah. That's yeah. what we did. Yeah, and you, you actually, you, you're surprised about how you want to face it and look at it. And if you think about it, I thought, Q feel, dancing in heaven, we've been chosen. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> They're looking for us. We will be dancing in heaven. <laughs> Hey, Brian, time for a song to play after that UFO uh, yeah, right. moment. This is a song uh, that you did all yourself, mate, and I think it's really quite fantastic and beautiful. It's called The Night um, the World right, Fell in Love. The Night All the World Fell in ah, Love. Yeah. All the World, okay. Now, this is a bit UFO-y, the way it sounds. The Night All the World Fell in Love. Tell me about it. That was um, something that uh, when we, we kind of went our separate ways when we did our... Um, our songwriting thing. Uh, we would, we still had Q Fuel, and yep. I, I wrote it for Q Fuel, and uh, it was very 80s, and the the demo was very dated. But yeah, we're playing demos. We're all friends here, so this is this is it. Night the world fell in love. Check it out, guys. All and you played everything on this, right? Yes. This is all Mr. Brian Ferrell.
Great, Brian. I'm, I tell you what, I'm, I can see why you thought that was Q-Film, because the atmospherics in that. And, of course, I'm still in the UFO mode here, but I think that's pretty, pretty special. And I had, oh, nothing, and I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> nothing to do with it. Hey, but you, you didn't like it? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you liked it. I do, I do. I love it. Um, I've got to say that at that point in the... Eight, in the um, when we come to America, got past the UFO thing, we went into it with a Earth, Wind & Fire. And that was a very, very special time because... Um, uh, what I found uh, amazing, as Brian said earlier in the show, we were in the front cra- in the in the front seats watching them play in Wembley. And two months later, we were in the studio working with them on an album called Electric Universe. And Maurice White took both Brian and I under his wing, and uh, and he became a mentor to both of us. And that, to, for me particularly, because I was writing the song Magnetic, um, and we wrote on songs, I think, uh, Spirit of a New World, mm-hmm. Electric Nation together, um, and we were both heavily involved in this Earth, Wind & Fire record. Brian was programming the drums and playing guitar. I was doing synth bass. And um, we were writing lyrics with Maurice on some of these songs. And, of course, this was a collaborating with uh, uh, David Foster, some of these people we followed who'd produced the tubes and producers and writers we'd always revered. To me, uh, that was ingrained in- into me, that first album, because um, I know that it was so special to walk into the studio with all nine players and perform live. Yeah, and you know, like Martin said, you know, one minute you're in the audience, next minute you're in the the sound booth with them. And uh, I, I, I always remember this one instance where Maurice said um, he left his stool in the the playing area, and he says, "You sit there talking to me." And Martin was behind a Moog synthesizer. You were doing Moog synth. Yeah. And he said, um, "I want you to sing the the guide vocal so I can listen to the track." So. And I I took a snapshot of that, and it was like, I am singing guide vocals from Maurice White on Earth, Wind & Fire track. Martin's playing Moog bass. (laughs) This is unreal. Wow, I I forgot that, Brian. I forgot forgot that. Unbelievable. But Maurice, he was a great leader. He spent a lot of time in the control room uh, guiding and directing and producing. Uh, Really knew what he wanted, but he he did it very calmly. Yes, we learned a lot from that, yeah. He was a very, very gentle soul. Yeah, and we can. Uh, we came from London, really. Um, we're just talking as mates here. Where you're in the studio for one day and all through the night because you don't have time to really work things out. And with Earth, Wind, and Fire, it was a sense that creativity had its own time, didn't it? Yes. As long as it took to get it. And we weren't yes. used to that. It was a totally different attitude towards mm-hmm. making records, making music. Uh, I remember asking Maurice. Um, What's your budget for an Earth, Wind and Fire album? And he says, it's when it's done, basically. Yeah, yeah, I thought, oh, those were the days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's not the way we were brought up in England. No, no. And that was, it, was, it was a magic for us because we were also, I think we learned at that time, I know I did, and I'm sure Brian felt the same way, is that you saw musicians um, developing their parts in the studio, uh, finding their spirit, laying back, and creating stuff that we couldn't believe. I know, yeah. yes. Different. Well, I remember you, you being the bass player and uh, you had like a special affinity with Verdine. Yeah, I was Verdine yeah. White. He was one of my heroes. He was, yeah, and there you go. You know, he was one of your heroes and you're standing in there in the control room with yeah. him because uh, Verdine used to like to plug in direct, to, direct inject, remember that? Yeah, yeah, play straight into the ball. And he would play because he wanted immediate response to his, his performance from Maurice and everybody else that was listening to him. Uh, so he would uh, go direct inject, and he would play the play his heart out, and then turn around and say, "What do you think? What do you think?" Yeah, yeah. great energy. And he was he was always looking at you. 
Yeah. He was always saying, "What do you think?" Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And it was like it must have been a buzz for you. Oh, it's unreal, you know. To I be think telling Verdine, you know something, you almost <laughs> had it there, mate, but not quite. Try, try One and more feel time. it. I'm sure you've got it in you. Come on, Verdine, try <laughs> and feel it. Come on. I mean, I'm from Southampton. It's born into me. Come on, you can feel it, Verdi. Yeah, lay back. Lay I know back what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, it's like a dream. You know, I said in one of the earlier shows, I felt like it was going down the rabbit's hole in Alice in Wonderland. You're suddenly in this room. And the great thing was, um, I, Brian was such a huge support to me. Even if I'd written a song on my own, Brian would say, I want to be there to help you develop it. Brian was tremendous on drum programming, which was very new in those days. Nobody really knew how to work on the Lindrum. So um, Maurice was always wanted to use Brian on uh, drum machines. Uh, you'll hear on one of my earlier shows, I play a demo called Adventures of the Heart. That's just all of us in the 16 track, and all that programming is all, all Brian. So what I found with um, working with Earth, Wind & Fire is that we were a really good team together because yes. it wasn't we could lean on each other yes you know and earth wind and fire took to that they just thought oh these are two guys that um one plays guitar and one plays bass one they both sing i mean even in maurice white's um book he said um these guys could sing and i was like really <laughs> <laughs> i don't remember that bit <laughs> and he used to bring us in didn't he yeah we used to actually sing uh, harmony vocals with them and i mean what an education i mean it was mm -hmm. unreal and um we got very 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 close with maurice but um I can remember being in the studio with the, all the bands set up. I mean, we'd seen them at Wembley with so much gear, and they were going to do their recordings live. This is what which was fantastic. And my manager, Diane, who worked with Earth, Wind & Fire, said they very, very um, never let anybody into the studio. They're real careful about that. And yet they really, really took to us, didn't they? They, they welcomed us in. It was amazing. And it was the humour, yeah. I think. They yes. liked the humour. They, they didn't understand our jokes, but they'd look at us and go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, crazy English. They I think, think what you were saying about you know the um, the relationship we had in the studio was we could instinctively tell when one was running out of energy. Yes, and yeah. take over from the other. Yes, true. And true. and it and it kept an energy level yeah. uh, up there. I mean, you you had so so much natural energy anyway, but you know the, it comes to everybody where they it's like I need a break. Yes. You know, and you didn't have to say that. You know, I could I could feel that coming. Yeah. And we take over from there. I yeah. take over from there, and you take over from me when yeah. I I was running out of steam. It was a uh, uh, we knew each other so well. I mean, in the sense that we went into those sessions, which were scary to us. You know, we turn up together. And for me personally, if you if you have a, a sergeant, which Brian was to me, a great a great partner, give me confidence, and that uh, we both had strengths which we could lean on. But it always felt like if we go in together into some of these hired record companies, into some of these sessions as a team, regardless if we win or lose, we're going to have a good laugh and we're going to believe in each other. We did that. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I always knew, as Brian said, you know, I thought, well, I know what Brian's strengths are, and he knows what Paige's strengths are, and um, it was. And of course, you meet someone. I think we were lucky, Bri, because when we first arrived in L.A., we got we were you know it was a town of cocaine, a, a, a town of drugs. And we ended up in uh, and Rufus, one of the greatest bands for me. We ended up at a party where Rufus was, right. and everybody's on drugs, and I wasn't at all that way. And uh, I remember they're very 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 um, worried about me. They said, "Is he a policeman? That man standing in the corner there <laughs> drinking a Coca Cola?" And Brian was like, "No, he's a great guy. He's all right." And I remember <laughs> us being in a car with Rufus driving, yes. and somebody had an overdose. I was thinking, this is L.A. This yes. is like two days into L.A. And what I'm trying to get to is when we met with Maurice, we met somebody who was spiritually oh, yeah. at a great space. And he knew, he, he said to us, I think both of us, he said, if you guys can keep yourselves straight um, and keep your naivety 
for why you love music, you're going to go a long way. That was a big thing. Keep yeah. an eye, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I sometimes felt he had been through so much, you yes. know, through Chicago and uh, you know, coming over to L.A., that he, he really... He had a really deep understanding of how bad it could get. Yes, you know, yeah, he'd yeah. seen a lot, and yeah. uh, and you, I really you, and you, that. And you sense, didn't you, with the band, them sense, because uh, I'm I might be somewhere else, and you were the band, and you were saying there was a the band were changing around him. Yes, and you you could sense yourself. You said to me that uh, some of the band are not quite. And Marie said, you know, they're not quite as focused as they used to be. Yes. you know. Yeah. So I think we came in at that time when um, it wasn't quite um, as healthy as it should be. And I think he saw in two young guys, which I, st- I say to Brian today, it's it's hard for an older man, I think. It's great credit to a, an older producer to say those two young kids have something I want to lean on. It was a big gamble for him, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it paid off, I hope. Especially for a Scotsman. I mean, I, it's a rare thing. <laughs> Hey, hey, this is going to lead us on to another song um, I want to ask Brian about because I wrote with Bernie Taubman for a long time and um, when I did Tribe, the album with Bernie Taubman of course I was going to lean on my best friend Brian to play guitar and arrange some of the stuff with us and uh, Brian wrote some songs with Bernie as well and this is a song called, uh, tell me about it Brian, uh, Cross Yourself. Uh, Cross Yourself was a result of me meeting with um, the producer of Buddy Guy. And uh, they wanted uh, a a single for Buddy Guy. So uh, he said, "Um, you got anything that would be suitable? And I said, yes, I do, actually. I didn't. Yeah, I know. I know that way. I went to Bernie and I said, Bernie, Buddy Guy, right? Blues. (laughs) Um, Real simple, but uh, I got to get it together real quick. And he said, uh, I've got something for you. He said, I'll, I'll fax it over to you right now. In those days, it was a fax. It wasn't an email. <laughs> yeah, right. The lyrics come through. <laughs> <laughs> Here comes the fax. <laughs> so as soon as I got it, it was I got it in the evening. I started writing it in the evening. By uh, the afternoon, the next day, I'd finished it. And uh, I, I got a rough demo down, just me thrashing out guitar on a cassette player. And I played it to, to, to Bernie. He said, that sounds great. He yeah, says, when are you going to record it? Mm-hmm. And I said, as soon as possible. So I um, I played the original uh, demo uh, very nervously to the producer, and he he said uh, I think that's got potential. I think it has. So we did the demo for real, and he loved it, absolutely loved it. But Buddy Guy didn't want to do it because he wanted to write his own stuff, which uh, is fine. That's you the know? way it goes. Yeah. Um, but you know, it was in the in the bag, as they say, and uh, then it wasn't. Did you do that on a um, four track, sixteen track, eight track? That was on a. Remember the old Akai twelve MG twelve twelve. Yeah, they were good. It was like a cassette thing. It was like a VHS right. cassette. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Twelve track. Yeah. Brilliant. So here's Bryce. Cross yourself. Lips are mine, and whiskey. 
I really like hearing you play blues guitar, right? I mean, on all my demos, uh, and we're going to put a few of my demos on, because you've played on like hundreds of my demos. Um, that's one question I want to throw in here that I think is really important is you're such an all-rounder. You can play so many different styles. And um, that was the, to me, there's the... Um, you know, the Elton John band, it's, uh, what's his name, the guitarist? David Johnson. David Johnson. I always yeah. thought that he was an all-rounder to be around Elton. And whenever we did, I wrote a song that was in a certain style, you seemed to jump on it. I mean, did you always, always want to be an all-rounder, that you could play so many different styles? I mean, so many guitarists stay in one place. I, um, I thought I should be able to play everything. Um, I tried to play everything, and I found I was good at blues, I was good at R&B, and... Um, I wasn't great at country, and I was terrible at flamenco. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't write a flamenco song, so uh, we're okay. That's good, because you never heard me playing badly on it. So um, I really felt it was my duty as a guitarist to uh, to learn everything uh, possible, everything out there. So I, I, uh, I, I think I suffered in a way because I was trying to be good at everything and wasn't absolutely excellent at one thing that's the way i see myself as a guitarist as a musician i i, I just gotta say probably not probably gonna want me to say this but i always felt even though when we split apart slightly as songwriters i just thought why isn't brian becoming a session guitarist that's in nice la and w why did you not feel i always felt like once these p players see how you play which did, did happen when we were working on tracks together why did you not pursue it was it something that you would have pursued or was it something that you thought now nope, i want to i don't want to concentrate on that I just was exposed to some of the uh, the top session players in in Hollywood, and uh, you know you, you had people like um, um, Jake Graydon and um, uh, who was he Dan Huff, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. the who, legends, the who, legends. You know, I, I was mixing with, and yeah. I, I I heard so how how fine their fine tuned their playing was, and their, it wasn't just the playing; it was their their attitude, their rack, their everything was built for professionalism yeah. and you know they they had a job to do they were journeymen they, you know they, they came in did the gig yeah and they were out no big deal to me it was like every gig was a huge deal yeah, it was yeah, like and i yeah, thought yeah. i don't want to compete with that I'd, I'd rather be a songwriter you so know? you made a conscious decision to say it's that's what i want to do yes it's songwriting well i still think that uh, even though you are a songwriter bry you are an amazing guitarist and here's a track that nobody's heard uh, before a uh, premiere of a song called even though you don't love me anymore and brian came over to my house and played some beautiful and pretty stunning blues guitar and i thought that possibly eric clapton could cut this song but here is brian helping me out and showing his uh, chops on a song uh, never heard before called even though you don't love me anymore. Looks like rain now that love 
Well, that's a song from The Vault. Um, never heard before. A 90s demo from my archives. In those days, it was very. Uh, I was very lucky, actually, because I could be writing a song and then pick up the phone and say, Bry, have you got 10 minutes to come across and uh, plug into a Rockman or an amp that I've got here and uh, make this sound professional? Uh, there we are. A song called uh, Even Though You Don't Love Me Anymore. And what a solo. That's uh, Mr. Fairweather playing blues. Um, uh, there was a period when um, we weren't always together, I suppose. When we did break apart, you um, you had a, quite a few cuts that started to happen straight away. And I, I forgot, but Johnny Mathis did a song, right? Yeah, I uh, wrote a song with Kathy Wakefield. Uh, oh, and she used to write lyrics, lyrics for Maurice, right? Yes, she was a wonderful person, wonderful uh, lyricist. She's a very nice person. And we uh, we got together for couple of songs two or three songs and uh we wrote a song called step by step i like that i remember for johnny methods yeah, so yeah it was very w- were uh, you involved in the production did you play on it or? uh well i ended up visiting the, the studio just yeah. to uh, to see what the what was going down and they they said they were having trouble with the guitar playing and uh not that they were having trouble with it they they were having um they were having an issue with getting the sound of the guitar solo and uh danny dianti was the uh, the producer and mm. he says mm do you want to give it a shot i said what me play it he said, did yeah. you have your guitar with you uh yeah i had my guitar with me because yeah. you always carried it with you. I always carried it? my guitar just in case in the brief just in case somebody asked me to do a johnny <laughs> mathis solo and uh he said well plug him in and uh they they did it and uh, the first take they said that's it so you, you, you were on the record playing that yeah i played the i solo. didn't know that and michelle columbia who was the, oh, the he was the ranger he came up to me and he, because I'd spent the whole day with them, you know, yeah. doing arrangements with them, uh, making sure that the the parts they understood what the parts were. Uh, he crossed his name out at the top of the manuscript, which says Michel Colombier arranged by, and wow. he, he wrote my name and he says oh. here I still got the I still got the manuscript. That's amazing because yeah. I well, I think you and I in London in the early years we had a Michel Colombier uh, fusion That's record right. that we loved and Jaco Pastorius was playing. That's right. I can't remember what it was, but it's I know what you're talking record, about. Yeah. yeah, and Maurice used me with him on a song called um, "My Lady Is Love." One of the ballads on his uh, solo album. Uh, I met Michelle Columbia and I thought, wow, this is pretty um, amazing. Very, very talented. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. all round. I mean, that album that we, we grew up on was pretty exceptional. And you also, they didn't you write, um, I've got the name wrong here, Black, a, a modern 80s band that were doing Scarlet and Black. Scarlet and Black, who had quite a bit of success. Yep. Robin Hilton, Sue West. Uh, Did you write people. with them? Yeah, um, we wrote together. We spent, uh, we used to hang out together a lot. Um, through Paul Fox as well, a keyboard player. Yeah, I used him uh, on the Tribe record, and he went yeah, on to produce XTC. Yeah. That's right, yeah, yeah. very talented man. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we, we wrote a few tracks together, uh, released an album, but uh, it didn't take. They had a very successful single. And they were the, quite a hip band. Yeah, they? They, they happened for a minute, you know, yeah. same as uh, Q-Fuel happened for a minute, yeah. but uh, yeah. they, they actually made it pretty well into the top 40 with their, uh, their song, yeah. Someday, it was called. And uh, Brian just mentioned Q-Phil then. Uh, nice thing to hear, our band from the 80s. Um, we had a big hit with Dancing in Heaven, but we didn't hit the top 40 like Scarlet and Black. But in those days, we were writing demos galore. And I wrote a demo on a four-track called Walking on Water. And even Brian looked at me and said, I can't quite remember that. Ah, I think I do. This is just how we wrote uh, in the early days for Q-Phil. All synthesizer, all bass, all funk and uh, 
hopefully, all energy. By the way, this song was written uh, about uh, the death of um, John Belushi. It's a totally 80s demo, uh, done, I think, on just on one synthesizer. So get your flares on, get back to the 80s, and here it is, Walking on Water.
my goodness, that is uh, really, really, really from the archives. Uh, never heard a cassette demo uh, for Q-Feel back in the 80s. A song called um, Walking on Water. I recorded that in my little flat in Islington uh, using the Roland CompuRhythm CR68 drum machine. And I'm slapping a bass, uh, an Aria bass, on top of the synth bass. That's what we did in those days. We all thought we were the funkiest things ever alive uh brian saying i think i can remember that uh i did play it to brian in washington dc when we first arrived in america now talking about uh, in america together i'm moving on to the 90s now when i recorded an album called in the house of stone and light my first solo album and this time was uh in my career very seminal to me a very um special time and what was a dream to me was in all the early years that me and Brian have been together, Q-Feel, we never ever get, got a chance to play as a band past, uh, you know, in, when we were songwriters, we never were able to go out on the road together. So for me to have a success at this late stage and to say, Brian, do you want to come with me on the road and uh, leave your wife and your family behind <laughs> and become a For a long period of time. <laughs> and it was a long time. How did you feel about that? Um, I was a little bit kind of anxious about it in yeah. a way because, uh, you know, I it, like to like I just had um, you know like some young kids uh, that I was going to miss yeah. some of their uh, their. It's their a big deal. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a huge deal. You know, and and like you say, we hadn't we hadn't uh, performed as a band since uh, CMV. I don't think. That's yeah, I right. think that was That's the last right. time we we got yeah. together on stage. Mm -hmm. You know. But uh, it was um, it's something I'll never forget. It was an experience that um, it was a great tour, wasn't it? I, you know, I thank you for. And oh. it was it was a wonderful experience for both well, of us. Well, to look you know? to you know, as you're, as you're singing it on stage and you look across and it's your mate playing guitar. What a thrill! It was and special, yeah. very special. Because I thought we're feeling it. You know, one thing I can remember um, when I formed a, when when I was picking the guitarists for CMB, I always saw two guitarists, mm -hmm. and you and Neil Taylor were brilliant together. Oh, that that was a great experience. What do you yeah. remember about playing with Neil? Uh, Neil was probably one of the tightest guitar players and one of the most inventive guitar players that I've ever uh, had the honor to be on the same stage as. He's he's an excellent player. Mm. And uh, just thoroughly enjoyed uh, being with it. Great, great guy. It, great fun together. We shared a lot of hotel rooms together. Yeah, you did. It you got, was, you bonded, uh, you two. Yeah, it, it was a great experience. He fell, asleep. Neil. He, he fell asleep a lot, didn't he? Big shout out to Neil. He <laughs> fell asleep a lot. <laughs> well, he was. I always remember him being carried around by our, our uh, manager he, at that time. He literally fell asleep <laughs> during sound checks. It was amazing. <laughs> That's how it's excited like, he was about the gig. Uh, Neil. <laughs> Neil, play guitar. Neil, your turn. Wake him up, somebody. So let's play a track from In the House of Stone and Light. This is actually a new version of a song called I Was Made For You. Brian and I uh, played this song for about two or three years acoustically during the In the House of Stone and Light tour. This version is from my album of love songs called The Slender Sadness. Doorway of my heart, the presence of the 
your face to my window and trust what you see inside. What are these hands for? If I can't bring you fallen rain, what are these eyes for? If I can't see the moon, watch over you.
That's a song called I Was Made For You. A great joy and a great passion to play that with Brian on the road um, because Brian had such a sensitivity to the emotion of this song. So I wanted to ask Brian, though, because this is a question I would have always wondered about, and I think um, on my radio show I'm going to ask it. Are you a spiritual man? I am not religious, but I'm spiritual. Yes, Mm -hmm. I I do believe in spirit. whether that I don't want to get too deep on t- into it, but you know whether you, that means that you uh, you have an afterlife, I I don't know. But uh, spiritually, I believe you know you, we are touched by things mm-hmm. and we're influenced by things uh, that we don't understand. And what um, excites you about music still now? How do you how, what 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 gets into your veins when you hear how everything's changed? Because you and I have been doing it for a long time, and you're still writing. So what what motivates you to say I got something to say? Because when I when I'm sitting with in my studio and I'm plugged in, and I want I want to create something, I don't want to create something that's already been created. So that's a it's a challenge. It's like something you know, like we're we're doing spooks, we're doing history. Yeah, Yeah. Um, they're they're sort of close to being songs. Yes. Um, But you know, I think as you've already discovered in your journey. There's more to music than just songs. It's uh, there's um, you know emotions and there's there's like spiritualism that yes. you touched on before, oh. uh, that is um, it's kind of undefinable um, until you actually put the notes mm-hmm. down right. and it's like yeah. there it is. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's that journey that you're know, discovering something new that hasn't been done before. And you've never got tired of this. Never. never no, I don't think you ever do. Um, mm. Some people are just musicians, not songwriters or composers, and uh, that's that's great. And they are they are really good at what they do. Um, I I as a musician have my reservations about my own ability, but uh, I I know my uh, my limits, and I know how far I can go. Um, as far as creativity is concerned, there are no limits because it's it's there's where the spirituality yep. comes in. Yeah, it's like you you don't have physical limits to spirituality and creativity. You, yes, uh, yeah, no. uh, If you can't play it yourself, get somebody else to do it. Yeah. and just describe to them like you do as a mm. producer. You know, mm-hmm. describe to them. This is how it feels. This yeah. is what color it is. This is you know such a great point, Brian. I, I wanted to bring this up, and I was going to forget about it. That whenever Brian would come across, and I'd say, "I've got a song here to p- for you to play guitar on." Um, we had such a heritage of um, loving so many artists, and we had, we were real pop record collectors. I could say to Brian, "Ah, it's a mixture of a Bebop Deluxe meeting, Earth Wind and Fire meeting, Leo Sayer," and he totally understood exactly the color of what we we're going for. And that's a that was a very special thing about us. We grew mm. up. Um, absolutely knowing the heritage that we were following, you know, and I think that's, yes. that's that could be pretty rare in today's songwriter. We grew up where you had to learn to play, you had to understand what the bass guitar did with the drums, you had to know how a record was made. And um, I have to say this about Brian, is that I absolutely trusted that if I said something to you like that, you would be able to bring that into my demos and my songs. Well, a lot of that was down to us having a history together yeah. and uh, understanding the same kind of music because we, we listened to the same kind of music when we were younger. I've been in the studio, I have to say, I've been in the studio with some, some pretty mediocre producers who have really tried to describe <laughs> what they want. 
but and, not got there. And I've really tried to give a bit, but it didn't get there, you know. And you can tell. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Uh, you do have a, a unique te technique of being able to, you know, like communicate what you need oh, thank you, from something. And uh, I think, yeah, musicians appreciate that. You know? What would it's you guidance? Uh, what would you advise uh, a person who wanted to be a songwriter? Um, we've got a huge heritage and we are veterans, but what would you advise to a young kid who was saying songwriting must be, hopefully, um, a wonderful career to pursue? Songwriting itself is um, is a difficult career to pursue, I, I, I think, right now. I mean, I'm, I, I think you probably know the answer to this more than I do, but um, you know, being a songwriter right now, you have to have dedication, you have to have energy, you have to have creativity, you have to be... Uh, somebody who who invents um like i said before you can't do the same thing you can't regurgitate what's already been yeah, done before yeah, 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 yeah. and you have to be prepared for a lot of knockbacks it's like being an audition actor you, you yeah. you've got to go in there and take 20 knockbacks before you get one somebody nodding their head and saying absolutely, that's, that's good you know yeah, yeah. and um it's, it's a long journey but um you know you still can do it um, a lot of I've noticed a lot of artists these days are not only the artists but they're also the writers and yeah. producers of their own yeah. work and yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a reason for that you know it's technology as well you're, you're cutting yeah. out the middleman yeah. you're saying you know I don't need the producer to tell me what mm. to do I know what to do and mm. uh, I know how creative I am I know my own limits yeah, yeah. I'm going yeah, for yeah. it yeah. in a way that's what you're doing you you have the ability and the uh, the tenacity to uh, you know to break through these barriers and uh, you know make yourself uh, make yourself a record that you're really proud of and you feel you and know? we had we had we've always had belief haven't we yes you know even when we were very kids, important yeah yeah you actually believe it's going to happen yes so. it's it's something that i always had i i wonder if i have as much as i had when i'm younger but that that feeling of hope yeah. that feeling of um it I means something. I don't yeah. care whether it happens. Yeah. I just know I'm going to do it. Yeah. That's yeah. basically what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think, I think as we get to the end of the show here, one of the most important things that everybody, everybody out there has been wondering about is that when we did perform live uh, on my tour um, around the world, all through America, um, doing In the House of Stone and Light tour, Brian Fairweather was seen to be wearing at some of the gigs a kilt. Um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and it's never. I, it's, I was wearing other things as well. It wasn't just a kilt. It's still burned into my brain, um, <laughs> etched there forever, emblazoned. <laughs> and I remember, and I just want Brian to comment on this because I think that the show should finish with this. Is that once we were playing live, I used to ask the crowd, "What is below the kilt that Brian Fairweather is uh, wearing?" And the uh, answer that came back, I think you shouted it out, Loch Ness Monster, didn't you say? <laughs> the real answer is a pair of shoes. <laughs> Depends how far, far down you go. <laughs> uh, what better way to finish the legend of the Loch Ness Monster? I've got to thank all you owl heads out there for being with me and Brian today. It's been really a big buzz to be with my best mate and for you all to be there um, flapping your wings and listening. Just remains for me to say thank you, Mr. Brian Fairweather, uh, my best mate for years, for being here today. Right there with you, mate. God bless you. It's been a lot of fun to be with you, Brian, um, for the two shows. And again, i got to thank you, all you guys out there for listening and tuning in because it's been a pretty rough period for us all to get through and we've all had to come together and uh, be owl heads as one, united. So, stay safe. 
be good, look after the animals, <laughs> listen to funk music, listen to rock music, listen to classical music, listen to all music. And remember, under every kilt is a Loch Ness monster. Stay strong, stay safe, stay healthy, look after all the ones you love. I shall be seeing you very, very, very soon. In the owl's nest. You bet.